It's okay. Living in a world like this to sometimes be heartbroken. You guys can bring my slides up for me back there. Uh, it's been a not just a tough week. It's been a tough 18 months. <clears throat> but today we're going to take time to look into this incredible letter from Peter to precious disciples who were suffering. We're continuing with our series on First Peter. I'll have more to say a little bit later about everything that's been happening. But we're titling this message this week, Beautiful Living Stones. It's very appropriate. So um, what's the first image you get in your head when you hear the word church? For most of us, by default, and I'm not judging you, it's buildings, steeples, steel, a stage, a pulpit. I Googled church, and the first result in big bold is a building used for public Christian worship. Again, stones, brick, mortar, steel, drywall. <clears throat> Question, what if this were our church? What if this is where Grace Life met? <clears throat> I got this picture from a friend of mine, Paul Heyer, who I went to college with. He's a missionary in South America. And he posted this about a year ago to the day. And he wrote this caption. This is his church, by the way. This is where he preaches every Sunday. He says, we weren't going back here to church again. The AC wasn't working right. The seats were uncomfortable. The exterminator hasn't been in a long time. The children's program is non-existent. The music is too loud. There was nobody my age there. Nobody liked me. The service was too long. I could go on, but I have to pray that God will help me find a better church. And then he wrote, people all over the world worship God in these kind of conditions and even worse. If you love God, you'll have a different perspective. It's about God and his people. It's about loving your brother. That's what he posted. Paul Heyer, missionary. Have you ever been part of a dysfunctional church? Excuse me. I believe dysfunction in a church starts with loving something else more than its people. That is the core of all dysfunction. It could be a building you love. It could be a program or the institution itself. That's when the church dysfunction begins to sprout, when we love those things more than the people sitting next to us. Let's look at our passage today from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Translation, put away all dysfunction. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted the Lord that the Lord is good, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe it. But for those who don't believe it, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
<laughs> excuse me, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. Historically speaking, I want to talk about this church dysfunction they were facing. Starting off with explaining and reminding you about this Gentile Jewish conflict. While suffering persecution from Nero, excuse me, there was simultaneous dysfunction between Jewish and Gentile believers in this church. And this conflict over Judaizers and Gentiles is the malice and hypocrisy that Peter is warning about in chapter 2, verse 1. We actually discussed the genesis of that last week. Many Jewish Christians still had deep commitment to their institution of Judaism. They loved the beautiful church building called the temple, which, by the way, would be destroyed about seven to eight years later. They were followers of Jesus and the apostles' teaching, but they were still obsessed with the culture of church, the culture of Judaism. They refused to let go of the temple worship and all of Judaism, and they held contempt for those who didn't embrace it as they did, even if these people were Gentiles. And these Judaizers would frequently come behind Paul. He would go into these regions, start a church, work there for a year, then leave. And these Judaizers would come behind Paul, demanding that all these brand new Gentile converts to Jesus be circumcised as adults. That's why Paul called them mutilators of the flesh, dogs and evildoers. They were making sure that these Gentile, new Gentile converts, oh yeah, you're saved, but you have to obey all the Jewish feasts. And these experts in the Old Testament, so they thought, they had a natural platform to elevate themselves as leaders in these churches that Paul started. They were the experts. That's why Paul wrote back often, these people who are saying that you're leaders, they are not. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're false teachers. <laughs> but their knowledge of the Old Testament intimidated these young Gentile believers, forcing them to keep even Jewish dietary laws, feast days, even pilgrimages to the temple. These Judaizers loved their rituals. They loved their ministry programs more than they loved their fellow Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Temple rules and temple programs were more important. Judaizers wanted Gentile believers to become full proselytes, embracing all of Judaism along with Jesus. Even worse, they held, if you guys remember our, our study of Jonah, they held Jonah-like racism toward Gentiles. Looking down on them as second-class brothers and sisters in Christ. Then early on, we had this early timid Peter Last week, we talked about that conflict between Peter and Paul over these uh, Judaistic practices. One of them was this, the table of fellowship. Remember, Jews weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles, even if they were all Christians. You can understand how hurtful it was that Peter didn't take a stand for these Gentiles, even as they're suffering Roman persecution and the burden of these false teachers, these Judaizers. Paul hated it. He wrote about it often, calling them these dogs, these evildoers. He even called them tombs full of dead men's bones. Paul was direct, if nothing else. Peter knew the Judaizers were wrong. But Peter, of all people, courageous Peter, at that time lacked the courage to address it like Paul did. Peter didn't want to address the issue for political and cultural reasons. He didn't want to rebuke this debauchery. 
And then from table fellowship to adult circumcision to observing feasts, Peter did not want to call the Judaizers out on any of it until Paul confronted him. But Peter did come around. After Paul was martyred and Peter's taking over these churches that Paul planted, he does a 180. Paul had left these precious churches in Peter's care, and Peter steps up. Their precious reconciliation between the two of them is part of what God uses to take Peter from Judaistic sympathizer to Gentile advocate. It's a complete transformation. Peter isn't just teaching a new doctrine. He's demanding of the church in the midst of persecution a whole new culture. So that's the history. Let's look at the spiritual part of this. I want to talk about living stones. I'm going to tell you, I mentioned this last couple of weeks, how 1 Peter is written just an incredibly brilliant way. I came up with a way to describe how well this is written. I'm now going to refer to Peter as the Winston Churchill of the ancient Greek language. He's that good. And he uses this metaphor of living stones to call out this dysfunction. I have two Greek words for you. I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but there are two Greek words. The first one is lethoi. It's it's plural of lethos, which means stones, particularly small stones used for building. This is the first word he uses. Then he has the next word. It's zonta. It's from the noun zeo, which we get for life. Zoology, zoo. It means living and breathing. So these two words together mean small building stones which are alive and breathing. He says, you are small building stones alive and breathing. And we get insight into why Peter would use this illustration of living stones from the Gospel of Mark, which we studied for 11 years, 80 weeks. Do you remember this story? I remember I preached on it, and I I told you I'm pretty confident this was Peter that said this. They were coming out of, this is near the end of the middle of Holy Week. They're coming out of the temple after Peter's been, after Jesus has been like laying it down for the, Uh, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right, teaching them. And they're coming out of the temple, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples, read Peter, said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and beautiful and wonderful buildings. Peter was in awe of these stones, these beautiful stones that were used to build the temple and all its buildings. And Jesus turns to him and says, do you see these great buildings, these beautiful stones? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See, Peter is the one who likely said this. I mean, he was the one always talking, right? And we know that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark from the perspective of Peter. This doctrine came directly from Jesus. In fact, Jesus basically called Peter himself a living stone in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. That's when he changed his name, which is Greek for rock. I tell you, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, you are going to become a living stone on which I build a new spiritual house. And so we have this concept of God's new temple. Paul had already taught this same concept to these exact same believers in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, where this is all taking place. Look what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, talking to Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, all the Jews who have become Christians. You are members of the house of God built on the foundation 
of the apostles, Peter, and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, get this is beautiful, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the new temple. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see this? See, now it's a unified apostolic front. Peter is affirming what Paul taught about a spiritual house which is greater than the house of stone that he was admiring that day they came out of the temple. And Peter declares as Gentile brothers and sisters, you are actually the same as me. You are living stones. You are the new temple. You are superior to the ones I used to admire. The temple that I love, the temple that I adore, the temple that I defended, that is nothing compared to you. And he commands them all, both Jew and Gentile, to lay aside the bickering about who's better, about Judaism, lay aside any malice, hypocrisy, or slander, and focus on what? Loving one another and not Judaism. That's why we learned a couple weeks ago what was the most important way of knowing if you were a child of God, if you love one another. It's all the same lesson. But there's one more part we have to see. He does talk about stumblers. The last part of our passage can't be overlooked. It's a final apostolic declaration of the preciousness of these Gentile believers. What Peter does, he actually quotes from the Old Testament, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He quotes from Isaiah and from Psalms. You know what that is? That is a clear message to the Judaizers that you're out of line with scriptures that you think you know and love so well. He makes it clear that Jewish Christians aren't superior to Gentiles. And any Jew believing so, Peter calls a stumbler. Judaizers are the builders who reject the Gentile brethren, and in doing so, he says, if you reject the Gentile brethren, you're not a Christian. You reject Christ, the chief cornerstone. They have rejected the Gentiles as a cherished part of God's spiritual house, and therefore they have rejected Jesus. See, all of this is tied to learning how to relentlessly love one another to know for sure that we have salvation. And Judaizers, they don't love. They love the building, the temple, the programs. Therefore, they do not know Christ. It's the same message the Apostle Paul had for them. What about us? What are you supposed to do with this doctrine of living stones? This was the sermon preview this week. The presence of God never fills a building of brick or stone. His only residence on earth is inside living stones. I've heard people pray before, Heavenly Father, a Holy Spirit, fill this place. Ridiculous prayer. Unbiblical. The Holy Spirit never fills a place. If you walk into a building, you think, wow, this feels holy. Wrong. The place is not holy. It's the people whom God lives within that are holy. And church dysfunction, like he's calling out in chapter 2, verse 1, usually always begins with people loving religion or its programs more than they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. It was the core of the dysfunction of the first century church, the love of the temple. That's why Paul and Peter had to address it. Eight years later, the temple is destroyed, and the first century church was forced to meet in houses, and it was no longer distracted by beautiful rocks. Suddenly, the church fell in love 
with its very own spiritual house. And in fact, the church exploded despite 250 more years of Roman persecution. A tyrannical government wanting to squash it at every moment. And now the movement they're trying to squash doesn't even have a building. They're meeting in houses in secret. And Rome can't do anything to stop it. But then we have some old habits that start to take place. Imagine what the Judaizers would have thought about this tent that my friend Paul works in. Question, does God's spirit show up in beautiful church buildings more than he does here at McCurdy's? Or maybe even that tent? Now, very early in the fourth century, churches started going back to worshiping venerated buildings. Even in this particular region in modern-day Turkey, there's a temple called, or the church called the, I'm going to try to say this right, the Ekmiadzin Cathedral. It's in Armenia, Armenia, just west of Turkey. It was actually built about 240 years after 1 Peter was written, 301 A.D., and it's been replaced by this current church in 483. It goes way back. And actually, in Istanbul, Turkey, this was built. The Church of Holy Wisdom. In about 437 AD, originally it was St. Stephen's, but a thousand years later it was conquered, and now it's a mosque. But it's still standing in Istanbul, Turkey, and this became the center of the Christian church in Istanbul. Then we have another one I'm not going to show you a picture of, but about this time, they started building St. Peter's Basilica over what was thought to be Peter's tomb in Rome. And the church, once again, was returning to venerating places and stones over people. Knowing what Peter himself writes about living stones, how do you think he would have felt about the basilica being built over his tomb? The one that is still venerated and revered today? Suddenly, about 250, 300 years after 1 Peter, the church begins to become quite dysfunctional. The church is no longer a place of living stones. It becomes a tool to consolidate political and economic power and influence. Its doctrine decays and its people are neglected. This continues for about 1,500 years until a movement called the Reformation sought to return the church to its roots of loving the teachings of Jesus and people more than buildings and institutions. But today, the American church struggles with this same dysfunction. The American church loves buildings, programs, and worship experiences more than its people. But its people are beautiful stones. You know the obsession that the Jewish people had for the temple that I've categorized for you earlier? And what the church had then for cathedrals and what it has now for big buildings, that's the level of passion and trust and hope we should have for the new temple, the people of God. I remember last year, don't judge me for this, but or you can if you want, I don't care. I remember last year when Notre Dame was burning in Paris. And many people were upset by that. Can I just give you confession? I didn't care. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's historic and it's beautiful, but 
I didn't really feel like the church was losing anything. You know how much they're going to spend to rebuild that thing? Half a billion with a B. I mean, it's a cool building and all, but does the church really need it? See, the church must get back to loving one another relentlessly before anything else if it wants to create healthy disciples. God's elect, redeemed, living stones are far superior to any cathedral. We make up a beautiful spiritual house which is mobile. It is organic. It is biblical. And it is generous. Buildings and institutions can't be any of these. Only living stones can be mobile, organic, biblical, and generous. That's why our relentless love for these, li these living stones is, as Peter says, the best, assur best assurance you can think of to know that you belong to Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone. Let me tell you something about grace life. We've got our issues. We probably have some dysfunction. I might be the chief cornerstone of the dysfunction in many ways. But uh, grace life is just a beautiful spiritual house built from flawed, redeemed, beautiful living stones. Some of them are now with Jesus face to face. I think of Kim Toomey. I think of Greg Bauer and Al Owen. They were part of what built this spiritual house. Others are still here. Beautiful living stones like Megan, Jerry, Diane, Lorraine, Steve, Pedro, Jimmy, Scotty, Blair, Cindy, Lisa, Chris. The problem is most of us barely know more than two or three of these beautiful living stones. I'm going to tell you, you cannot continue to not know beautiful living stones without becoming a stumbler. Paul wrote this. Remember, I told you a little bit last week. He wasn't talking about oversleeping when he said this. He was talking about even if your life is being threatened, don't neglect meeting together. That's what he said. Even if you get killed for it, you should still meet together. And like I said last week, the American church has certainly lowered the bar, right? I mean, we let staying up late keep us from meeting together. Here's what Paul says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encourage, motivate, inspire one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, those who were fearful but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How can you do that if you're not with his people? If you're not in love with beautiful stones? Some of you here, you have lost your first love. You're in love with man-made rocks. Some of them are religious. Some of them are materialistic. Some of them are political. Some of them are dysfunctional relationships that you've created yourself. 
No wonder your faith is becoming dysfunctional. Sometimes we're so distracted by these rocks, we never get to experience the full blessing of knowing our beautiful living stones. Many of us need to fall in love again with these precious living stones around us. The ones God used to build your church. And soon, you'll be hearing about this. We're launching a new focus at Grace Life that will help you fall in love with these beautiful living stones all around you. And you can stay tuned on that. You'll be hearing details soon. We're changing up a lot of things. We're going to require more of you. Opportunities to show that your connection to Jesus is genuine by relentlessly loving one another, by gathering together, just as Peter commands. Loving God's beautiful living stones that he has given us, that is, in fact, your highest calling. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this is the greatest command. And anyone who says they have a true connection with the chief cornerstone of this spiritual house will naturally relentlessly love the other living stones within it. I didn't make that up. That's what Jesus said and Peter and Paul. So what are you waiting for? What dead man-made stones are keeping you from loving the beautiful living stones around you in this spiritual house today? Grace Life, I am calling you today to put aside any malice and love this spiritual house. This temple of living stones, it's time for you to love it more than you ever have before because it needs you. I need you. On our way out today, I'm calling you to take a moment before you rush off to lunch or whatever it is you're doing and meet, and meet at least one precious, beautiful living stone you haven't met yet. Elbow bump, whatever you need to do to be safe. Because I can tell you, they are beautiful stones. And you've got to get to know them. And as you fall in love with them, you'll have the security you think that you want of knowing that you are connected to the chief cornerstone. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to fall in love with the living stones around us Help us to be able to determine what are some of these man-made rocks we've traded in, these chosen and precious stones that you've created and brought into our life. There's so many of them. And we confess to you, we often love them more than we love our brothers and sisters. Give us the courage and willingness to dispense with all of it. Lord, it's in times like these 
when a church is suffering loss and grieving and hurting. It's in times like these that we must love one another relentlessly. And it's not just that the living stones need us to love them. We need them to love us. And then we can say, look at these beautiful stones and this beautiful spiritual house. We pray for these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Just a couple of things before we go. You'll be hearing more information in the coming week or two about plans for celebrating Al's life and ministry with us. Um, there'll be more like a family and a, and a church celebration of life. And then there, the next day, there's going to be a big benefit concert with all the musicians in town that know Al. We're going to have a big blowout concert. It's going to be a blast. I think that's what Al would want. So we'll be hearing more about that. But until then,